Hashtag SAFM Talking Point. We continue the conversation on the talking point and of course yesterday uh, the story receiving a lot of coverage. We saw the media briefing around the Lee Matthews case and much of it was really about this process of parole and the Correctional Services Department has come out to deny that in fact um, you know it's considering granting Donovan Moodley parole. The family of Lee Matthews says that they received a message from the Department of Correctional Services for mediation ahead of a possible uh, parole hearing for Moodley. Luke Lambrecht is the Head of Advocacy at Women and Men Against Child Abuse and he joins me now. Luke, good morning to you. I think before we go, uh, you know, just any further, if you can just begin by by telling us about the involvement of, of women and men against child abuse in particular in the Lee Matthews matter. Hi, Cathy. Good morning. Good morning to all your listeners as well. Thanks for having us on. Uh, Women and Men Against Child Abuse was asked to become involved by Evershed's attorneys who the Matthews family briefed when they started getting contradictory messages around Mr. Moodley's parole. Mm-hmm. So we were brought on board really to raise public awareness and educate the public in our role as victim support people around the role of victims and the support required in the parole process. Mm. So they appointed a lawyer to help them understand what was going on. That already in itself suggests that the process, at least on the part of the Correctional Services Department, wasn't quite clear for the family. Absolutely. So uh, the, the two things that, that that have happened that have created the confusion was there was two sets of communication sent. So the one set of communication said that would they like to participate in the process? Mm-hmm. And this was a few years ago, but uh, Mr. Moodley is not eligible for parole until a very specific date in 2030. And then there was a call from a a person from the Victim Offender Mediation Services Mm. who said, do you want to participate in the process ahead of the parole hearing? And then, which was this year, and then when they um, asked correctional services for clarity, that the Department of Corrections said there was a process um, set down for the 31st of May 2021, but that that would be delayed based on the outcome of the victim offender mediation. So it became extremely confusing. First of all, how come we go from 2030 to 2021, mm. and how is it that the communication to the family? is contradictory how do we involve the the uh, family in processes that they don't understand so what relationship does a victim offender mediation have on parole and do you have to attend a victim offender mediation if you don't does that adversely affect um, the victim's rights in parole and favor mr moodley's parole hearing mm-hmm. and that's essentially why the lawyers were briefed because we couldn't get clarity on that and what we then as an organization did was support the family in terms of getting information into the public domain because there are many victims who are struggling with this, with similar issues. And in fact, subsequent to the press conference, I've actually had a mother contact me whose daughter was murdered um, 
by a man who was out on parole. So there is huge Mm. difficulties within this parole system, which has been acknowledged, for example, by Judge Cameron. And we're saying we need clarity. And that's all we're asking for is how how can we have a nine-year gap or nine-year difference in two sets of communication from the same department? And, And Luke, I'm assuming that the communication was from different people. Indeed. That, that is very important to clarify as well. And it um, was over a, a time difference of, a, a, don't quote me directly on the amount of time, but it's a period of about two years where the, the different communication occurred. And you know, we've got the original emails with the, you know, if the media wants access to the original emails with the sources, you know, the actual people from Corrections who sent this communication. It comes directly from the department. Mm. Let's talk about this mediation process and oftentimes what it entails. So just through your own experience and the different families that you have assisted over the years, what do you understand of the process? Look, victim offender mediation is part of the restorative justice process, which is deeply entrenched in the South African history. So, uh, for example, the TRC uh, process was a restorative justice process where, you I mean, you'll remember uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu saying what we are seeking is truth and through truth we can find closure. And we know that for some people that process worked well. And we know that for other people there are still major concerns that they haven't got closure, they haven't been able to bury their families so there's been huge kind of uh, challenges around restorative justice in our country. So with that as a background, victim offender mediation is an attempt for there to be first a restoration of the person to themselves. In other words, I wronged you, I wronged the community, I show remorse, I take full responsibility, I've rehabilitated myself. Then there's an attempt to restore that person to the people they've harmed, which is the purpose of the mediation. And then there is the process of restoring that person to society. Society. So in other words, the release of that person or the forgiveness of that person. Now, in this particular case, we don't always recommend victim offender mediations because sometimes a victim offender mediation is actually counterproductive because if the accused or the convicted or the inmate comes forward still denying what he did, still not uh, telling the full story, still not showing remorse, no evidence of rehabilitation, there is nothing to mediate. And as um, Bishop uh, Tutu said, you, you cannot be reconciled to that which you do not know. So it's on the back of that that the family said, why are we participating in a mediation when there's nothing to restore? What is the family not satisfied with in terms of Donovan Moodley and what they believe he has not been forthcoming with and as far as information is concerned. So effectively, what is preventing them from entering into any kind of mediation? Great question. So it, 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 there's three levels, uh, three levels of answer to that. The first is that in the judgment where Mr. Mudley was convicted and sentenced, the judge found that uh, he had not made a full disclosure. We don't know what happened to Lee during those um, 12 days. There was, um, for example, the pathologist found that uh, there was frostbite. There was no insect activity uh, when her body was found. So she was stored somewhere for that period of time. So who was complicit in that? 
was it was there more than just Mr. Moodley involved? And the belief by the judge was that a full disclosure was not made. So that's the first thing in terms of a restorative process. You have to show remorse and you have to make a full disclosure. So the second thing that that became a challenge was that he applied for a retrial, which is no real thing like that in our country, saying that he will tell the he will tell the world who was actually involved. For example, uh, there was a drug connection and there is an alternative version, which is the truth. And when his, um, when his application was turned down, he then didn't give the full version. So he said there was another version, but they never gave it when his application was turned down. And then the final level is really the request that the family have made to correctional services to show that he has in fact been rehabilitated and has shown remorse. So, you know, what what we are saying is that why does the burden rest on the family for the family to give reasons why Mr. Moodley should still stay in jail? Why should the burden not be on Mr. Moodley and Correctional Services to show reasons why he should be released, i.e. rehabilitation? And that has not been forthcoming because the Department of Corrections has not answered the family and we are told that Mr. Moodley has to actually give um, permission for that information to be released. Mm. I, I'm just imagining, you know, trying to put myself in in the shoes of of families that are having to undergo such processes, and how traumatic it must be to to be engaged in these conversations in this way, especially in an instance where you feel that justice has not been been fully served. What has been the experience of, of the family throughout all of this? Because on, on the one hand, it's an administrative process, but mm. on the other, I imagine a very emotional process for a family that is, has lost uh, you know a loved one in the most cruel and inhumane of what manners are possible. Absolutely. So I think I think the two things to recognize when you when you look at the impact is you are entirely right that is administrative process. And that is part of our objection is that they do not, it is not victim centric because it is about that person's application, the inmate's application for parole. It's not taking into account the impact that has on the victims. The second, the second element to it is the fact that there's almost a sense of a lack of regard for the life that was taken. And that lack of regard is extremely painful for, for the family because you don't want to engage in a mediation because there's nothing to restore. But you are then told that if you don't engage in the mediation, the inmate will get the upper hand in the parole hearing. So you have to face that person in a mediation where you don't really understand the process. You don't, they've not been forthcoming on will there be protection. And in fact, when we told the victim friend of mediation, um, uh, group that we have retained an attorney they were very unhappy about that and they said that that may be intimidating to Mr. Moodley. We said well if it's intimidating to Mr. Moodley who has set this process in place, how much more intimidating for the families who have to face the person who murdered their child again because they've faced that person in court over a long period of time. And then once this process is finished they have to face that person again in the parole hearing. So we are, we are completely unclear as to where the rights of the victims 
and the families of deceased victims are actually being upheld in the system. And we, we can't really find anywhere where they're being upheld. As you say, it seems to be administrative in nature rather than taking due regard first for the victims and then mm. for the broader society. Mm. Mm. Uh, do you have cases where, you know, where you have offenders and, and convicted criminals who have committed atrocious crimes and where you have had successful mediation efforts taking place between the families and between the offenders of of those crimes. I mean, are there one or two cases that you've worked on that you can reference for us? Myself personally, none. I think what what you must also recognize is I'm quite a biased sample of the population because when cases come to me, there are the most serious cases. There are cases where there is no resolution. There are murder cases, baby murder cases. There are child sexual abuse cases. And in many of those cases, there is nothing to restore. So in my experience, a victim mm. offender mediation cases I have dealt with, I've mm. never seen a successful one. Mm. And and what are the things that, that families say to you about why they don't even want to get involved in, in those cases? I mean, of course, I have an appreciation for that different cases will, will have the, their own specific details sure. as you have given us with Lee Matthews, but I suppose from some of the broader issues that that perhaps you pick on from from one family to the other. Well, let me give you an example of the last parole hearing and the last victim offender mediation, which didn't happen, by the way, we opted out of it, was that the, um, it was in the Bob Hewitt case, you know, the historical mm. sexual abuse case. Mm. So in that case, the um, victims were called to victim offender mediation and we said, what is the point of the mediation? What are you trying to achieve? Oh, no, we, we need to have this conversation. If people bump into each other in the community, you know, there, there's going to be um, challenges and we want to make sure that we've resolved any potential conflict. We said, but there's nothing to restore. We do not want him released, number one. And we can put that in writing, which we did. You know, the lawyer, the same lawyer ever shared, put it in writing, you know, as representation. So we said, we can make this, we can make our submissions in writing. Why do we need to confront this person? In addition, Mr. Hewitt then started making demands on the victims. He wanted them all there. Otherwise, he's not engaging because he's, he's, he's not, his rights are not being met. And in fact, at, at a point in time, he said, rather than admit to what he did, he'd rather spend the extra two years in jail. So you can't make a blanket mediation restorative justice approach when the person who you are mm. attempting to restore to the victims is not restoring. So that, that those are the experiences I've had where, and, and like I said, I'm a biased population because, you know, when advocacy gets involved in something, it's because the process is not working mm. for the victims. So, you know, there may be examples where it has been successful, but I have not, I have not had successful experiences of it myself. Luke, it sounds to me that, you know, in, in many instances, uh, at least on the part of the Correctional Services Department, there, mm. there isn't enough consideration for the attitude of the individual on whose behalf they, they are acting and trying to engage with a broader family or even community. Because if somebody is not, you know, remorseful, if somebody mm. is not sorry, if somebody is not as rehabilitated as one would imagine they need to be, then mm. it's incredibly hurtful, I think, for for the victims and for the families to be put through the process of, of somewhat being forced to listen to their story when they know that 
they actually don't acknowledge, at least to the full extent, the harm that they have caused. Look, I think you're spot on. And obviously, the, you know, the fact that they don't, don't take due regard. For example, there are certain people who are not rehabilitatable. So, I mean, certain categories of incarcerated persons like, you know, unrepentant psychopaths, mm-hmm. uh, that they need an external control because they, they can't manage their own behavior. They are not rehabilitatable. They are not remorseful. So, the, you know, the, the idea that you go to something where someone still denies things or doesn't tell you the truth or says that, oh, well, you know, I killed this person. I mean, in Mr. Moodley's case, you know, he said it was because he wanted to, he needed money. He was motivated by money. You know, he needed to buy an engagement ring and services Ducati. I mean, you take a life for that. So, you know, the the big thing is that the, that the, the not screening the person adequately to say that they are a candidate to participate in this process is translates into it almost inevitably being um, traumatic for the victim. Like in the, in the Hewitt matter, for example, you know, we sent in representations, we had very serious advocates look at it, that Eversheds referred, uh, referred the case to, we... Um, engaged in the process we went to the we went to the parole hearing and he got parole anyway regardless of the fact that he was not remorseful so the 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 question is is by what standard are people being judged and screened for release you can't just give everybody um parole because you need to have a far more stringent process to see if this person is able to re-enter society rather than saying, okay, well, this process has come up. And as you said earlier in the interview, Mm -hmm. that this is now an administrative process we need to complete and we complete an administrative process. These things come with deep, deep meaning Mm -hmm. to the people involved in them. And I think they don't take into consideration the meaning that these processes have. They just go through the content of them. Look, Lambrecht is the head of advocacy at Women and Men Against Child Abuse. And we are talking about, you know, the processes of parole, at least on the part of offenders and the role of families that are brought in uh, to these mediations or called into these mediations and uh, some of the challenges that they face. And uh, Luke certainly has dealt with a number of cases uh, in this particular field. Uh, The number, of course, to use to be part of this conversation is 011-714-2006. That's the number to use to get in touch with us this morning. I'll be taking your calls after this. Conversations that you connect with and react to. SAFM. SAFM. 104 to 107 nationwide. All right, let's continue the conversation then with Luke Lambrecht, who is uh, the head of advocacy at Men women and at women and men against child abuse i thought i could get away with uh, with uh, swapping the two but i realize it just won't work uh, let me go to ifrahim in bolokwane good morning to you ifrahim ifrahim hello katie how are you i'm well thank you sir i'm okay man mm. <clears throat> thanks very much for taking my call again this morning mm. i think i'm becoming one of the popular uh uh mm. <laughs> a competitor in this essay. Mm, mm. If, even if you, if you, even if you say so yourself, eh, Ephraim. Come again. It's fine. Go for it. Go for it, Ephraim. All right. Um, Katie, can I, I just ask? Do you still remember the man by the name of Shabri Sheikh? Yes. Where is he? 
Not in prison. Eh? He's not in prison. Not that is no. Hi, Ephraim. Yeah, can you hear me? I'm asking. Do you still remember the man by the name of Shabir Sheikh? Of Shabir Sheikh? Yeah. yeah. I think uh, if, if you can remember very well, this, this thing of parole and stuff, mm. whether the people are competent, I mean, they are doing well and corrected and uh, in, in, in a world they're inmates. Uh, it's not working for some other people. It's working for some other group of people. Remember when Sheikh was like out, we were told of uh, him, Sikh, what, what, and all those things. But um, I, I don't like when people die, but uh, the way they were describing him, we should, we should even just made a tombstone. But uh, it seems like parole is not actually waiting for some other people in South Africa. Mm, mm, mm. Another group is better than... All animals are not equal. And and who do you think it's not working for? Is it not working for um, the families and the relatives of the victims? Or is it not working for the offenders in that there is not equal treatment? I'll say that because if you can remember well, some group of people who were like uh, outside the union building, I think uh, last month or so, uh, saying uh, it was enough. Remember, Casey, if I was um, um, sentenced, by that, the date when I'm sentenced, they say you are uh, 10 years, you are sentenced to 10 years imprisonment, and they also give you the condition of your uh, and then they say to you, uh, if it happens for you to like uh, behave very, I mean, good, that means that they can cut maybe three years. If it was eight years, maybe sometimes they give you four years in and four years outside, mm-hmm. depending on when you are outside again, how are you responding to the public? But um, Fabrik was seen playing golf, was seen playing all those things and then he's, he's, he's for not necessarily that I've got a problem with him but I'm just giving you an example of one of the person that is well known to the public mm. so he violated uh, the, the, the the condition of the parole why they did not pick him up again and, and, and send him in okay okay Ephraim in Bulukwane thanks for the call interesting question there Tabiso in Bloom good morning I'm well thank you sir I'm fine. Katie, I have a niece of mine that was molested, and the accused was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Mm-hmm. But he only says one year. When we inquire about what, what happened, they said he's uh, been out on parole because of COVID 19. So, Katie, I want I like to be informed uh, how was that the accused can save only one year? while he was sentenced for 15 years. When, when, when did all of this happen, Tabiso? It happened in 2019, Kevin. So he was sentenced in 2019 for 15 yes. years. But he, he was released last year, 2020, because of COVID-19. And, and which part of the country did this t- t- take place in? The, the accused was sentenced to Velcom Regional Court. Uh. Yes, Kevin. Yo. And and the family wasn't notified at all about nothing, Kathy. Nothing. My brother went to the police station, and he was told that they will investigate what happened. 
So even now, we are still waiting for the answer of what happened. And how did you guys come to find out that he had been released? We only saw a cruise on the street, Jesse. Look, this is probably the worst way that it can happen. Hello, hello, Luke. That wouldn't be part of the proper parole process because, you know, there's obviously a, a time that you have to serve as a minimum mm. in order to qualify for parole. What he's, what, what, he's, uh, what your call is talking about and the, the, the convicted person in his instance seems to be one of those that received those pardons during COVID to reduce the numbers. Now, one of the questions we are asking, and it's, it's a fantastic call, because we were asking what kind of people are being released from prison on what conditions, mm-hmm. because also how they've been supervised, where are they reporting to, are there uh, sufficient correctional service officers, parole officers, to monitor these people who've been uh, released into the communities. And I don't have the exact amount um, on hand, but I believe it's in the vicinity of 15,000 that were released under that, um, you know, to empty the prisons under COVID. Because mm. you'll remember they locked the prisons down first yes, when yes. COVID first mm. started because mm. of the, you know, the overcrowding and the conditions and the worry about people dying within prisons and what that would mean for the government. So we have no idea who was released and we have no idea mm. who is supervising those people. So, yeah, we have a convicted child abuser who, in, who frankly, I mean, the, the minimum sentence for child abuse or child rape should be life as well. So why didn't get life is question one, and how he was relieved after uh, one year is question two. And the third question is who's actually monitoring this person? Because mm. clearly, I mean, there's, I mean that, that's, a, that's a miscarriage of justice for the family and the child who went through this very grueling criminal mm. justice process mm. to try and achieve justice. Uh, Tabi, so how is your family feeling about all this? Can uh, uh, so they are upset because they they accuse has the attitude that you can't do anything to him. And the worst part is this: my niece always passes around the street. You also see this guy. Oh. You see the the pain that is going through my niece and my my brother as well. Oh, I, 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 Jan, I don't even, for, yeah, look. Jan, for me, for me the, you know, one of the big questions to the department on that is that, for example, if you're a person who's out on bail, you are not allowed to be in contact with, you know, the witnesses, you're not allowed to interfere. How, how is it that when he's out on parole, technically still serving a 15-year sentence, that he can be in the same vicinity where this child has to walk past and say there's nothing you can do to him? Mm. I mean, that's clearly, mm. for me, that should be a violation of parole in my mind and I mean I would like the department to clarify something like that because I'm sure uh, your caller is not the only family who are struggling with this particular issue. Oh, it's absolutely horrible that this this young girl has to actually go through this on the day-to-day knowing that this person is lurking in their community you become so vulnerable and just the threat of knowing that they could possibly come back and target you what a, it's absolutely disgusting. Tabiso, I'm so sorry for what you and your family are, are going through. Uh, Tabiso, out in Bloemfontein there. Okay, um, I see Mark from Durban is still on the line holding. Let me do this. Maybe we'll continue with Mark after uh, the 11 o'clock uh, news update. And, and Luke, I'll also just ask you uh, to, to stay with us for that. Sure, it's pleasure. just after 11 o'clock. Luanda Maume is standing by with your latest news update. 
SAFM 104 to 107 nationwide. With the Department of Correctional Services to try and get answers to the questions that have been posed uh, in the last couple of minutes of, of of that segment to to really try and understand, you know, what what ca- what do officials say to families such as Tabiso's family who are saying this man molested our child and now he's roaming the streets a year after being imprisoned and we were not even told about it and he is bragging about how he is untouchable and no one can do anything to him. The victim of his acts has to walk the streets knowing that he is there, has to bump into him on the street. It, it is just, uh, you know, a, a complete travesty of justice. Mark, you, you've been holding from Durban. Thank you so much for uh, for staying on the line. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, firstly, I, know I want to acknowledge and compliment Mr. Lewis, you know, for his stance and, you know, the mannerism in which he's approaching this and his knowledge. You know, he must continue this fight for for the people and for the populace. Mm-hmm. You know, he's that type of person that we must put into Parliament uh, as, as that kind of person who we can rely on and look up to. So, this message is to him, just keep on that fight. Secondly... He, he, it's an appeal that he must support people like uh, the last caller and also people, the victim of this moodly character. Mm-hmm. And, and the whole purpose of my call is that we can never allow this moodly character to come out on the streets. Mm-hmm. We have to stand and placard and toy toy outside the prison and show support that we, this injustice can never be allowed. Then the last point is that, you know, we keep on saying that we're looking for direction here and there's no direction here and it's unclear that. And we want Mr. Lord, for us people looking on the outside to please fight this fight for us because we cannot allow this to continue and continue and then we're going to have this riffraff in the society on the streets. Mm-hmm. I'd just like to know from him going forward when he puts his phone down, what is he going to do more for us and then what can we do to help him? All Anything. Right. Okay. All right, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for that. Luke? Okay. I'm not sure who we've dropped there. Luke, are you still on the line? Okay, it looks like uh, we may have dropped the line uh, to Luke there. And, of course, I wanted to give him an opportunity just to... No, no, I'm oh, sorry. Oh, there we go. I'm, oh, there you sorry, go. Sorry, I'm still here. Yeah, I think okay. Mark dropped the line. All right, sorry sure, about no, that. no problem. <laughs> yeah, do, do you want to respond okay. to what he was saying? Yes, so, so first of all, thank, thank you to Mark for his very kind words. In terms of the second one, we would... Uh, the second point, we would really like to support um, Tabiso's family because, I mean, you know, the, the brazenness with which this um, convicted, sentenced offender is behaving around the child just sends the message to that child that, 
and to other children that if you talk, nothing happens. And we mm. constantly tell children to disclose abuse and justice will happen. The justice process is hard enough without feeling that there is no justice after you have got justice. So, I mean, we certainly would, um, you know, in terms of the advocacy the element, we would certainly want to support that family. And then finally, I think the, the question that you asked around what we are doing and how society can help and is offered to Toy Toy, and that is, is really important because we will continue our fight. And the, and the parole fight is a, is a relatively new fight. You know, we've done court preparation and victim support and, you know, medical examinations, you know, in the criminal justice process, and people have gone to jail. And now we are trying to keep people in jail. So I think the two points I want to land in conclusion is, number one, I, and it sounds like Mark neither, I certainly did not make a social contract with my democratic country that they can release dangerous people into a world where I live with children that I look after. That's that's not part of the contract. So where is it that the government is looking at balancing rights rather than just simply saying we've got other pressures like COVID, which seems to have been the reason for the release of that um, child rapist onto the streets. So we didn't we didn't agree as a democratic country to that. And as a result, we need to fight that system. Because as South Africans, we are good at protest. We are good at fighting injustice. It's what we are known for. And this is a new injustice that we need to be aware of. And we need to fight together. We will lead the charge with our knowledge and our resources that come from our position of kind of resource and privilege. And then the second thing is that society needs to say we will not accept being treated like this by a government that we have signed up to in a democratic constitutional democracy. Let me, let me bring into our conversation uh, Anonymous, Luke, and Anonymous, mm, you, sure. you, you, you've called us and, you know, you, you desperately want your story to also be heard this morning. I understand that you too are a survivor of rape. Uh, yeah. You know what, I feel sorry for her because I understand what she's going to go through for the next eternity of life. Mm. I was raped as a 10-year-old. I... My parents took me and did. we did everything right. I got the courts, everything. He got nine months because they lost the evidence. Okay? To find out through Facebook and everything, he's got a family. He's got two little girls. Wow, that's nice for him. I suffer every day of my life. I don't trust people. I go to therapy. I'm on anti-anxiety meds. This, we are talking more than 20 years later. Do you know how horrible it feels for a victim to be able to know you can't have that quality of life? A person took it from you and they didn't even suffer anything? Hmm. How do girls go through that? And then you get looked at when you say, oh, yeah, but I have a dis- I, um bipolar because of trauma and they go oh that's your problem try and live find out from people how they actually feel when they have to walk along the street and see that person and then years go by and you're thinking oh my life is under control Mm. and then that person walks past you with a kid and you still don't have your life under control How can cops and people allow this to happen 
to victims. We didn't ask for it. A child does not ask for it. Mm. And, and, you know, Anonymous, what you're saying is, is so important because it's highlighting the ways in which your life will never be the same again because of what this person has done to you and perhaps even what they have taken from you. And it's important to have a sense of, of justice being served. I agree with you there. It's taken me many years to be able to actually say it talk about it to other people Mm. but you still get judged like oh you must have caused it you must have wanted it Mm. how does a 10 year old know what they want or don't want you are kids where you see your whole family moving along i have nieces and nephews everybody moves along but you still have that fear were you ever given reasons by the authorities for for how you know how they say that they they lost some of the evidence in in the case um to tell you the truth i don't know my parents dealt with that i haven't mm-hmm. re-asked for it i haven't um i try very hard to let it go but when you hear stories like this with kids it's still happening i promise you if i had my choice any child rapist would be killed on the spot. Okay. Anonymous, thank you so much for for calling in and and sharing uh, your own personal journey and and experience in relation to our topic today. Luke, um, th- this is this is a, a a field in which you you deal mostly in, especially when yeah. it comes to uh, you know gender based violence and and the kind of uh, assaults even that take place, the sexual assaults that take yeah. place in this country. Right. First of all, um, I'm, I'm very pleased to hear that Anonymous is going to therapy because, you know, the truth is that, you know, people who have been hurt need support. And the fact that she found that she did not find support within our country's justice system is devastating. Because, you know, in terms of, for example, sentencing, you know, generally what is done when sentencing is considered is they consider the impact of the trauma on the victim. It's called a victim impact statement. And the fact that the impact on her by her experience, her own subjective experience, not the technicalities of the law and the balancing and the loss of evidence and all the other things that people might argue, her subjective experience and her healing is that it was not acknowledged by the system that what happened to her was devastating because he got this minuscule sentence and was then sent on to happily lead his own life. The same holds for parole. So like, for example, in the Ewart case, victim impact statements were submitted about the impact that his abuse had on those young girls as well, who are now adults as well. And it's the fact that he got parole means that they essentially the system disregarded the impact on the victim. So not only does the system not take into consideration the current impact of needing to relive trauma, but the past trauma that has been caused by the abuse and the fact that you need to remain traumatized in order to keep somebody in jail. And even if you submit those statements, they still don't stay in jail. Mm. So it just the subjective experience of victims is that this system, regardless of Mr. Ramaphosa's five-point plan 
on gender-based violence and the fact that in every family meeting we had, he declared it the second pandemic. You know, the truth is that, you know, when you talk about a system that is supportive to victims, it simply is not. And the subjective experience of that last anonymous caller tells us that, and that's an indictment on a society that is meant to be fighting gender-based violence and violence in general so that we can all live the harmonious, peaceful life that we all seek in our wonderful country. Luke, let me thank you so much for being part of Thanks for our the time. conversation. I appreciate it. Uh, part of our conversation for today. We'll certainly be uh, putting in a request to the Department of Correctional Services because I think that there are a number of issues that we need to raise with the department and even the specific issues uh, such as the call that Tabiso made. We need to get answers for something that, that has happened as recently as last year, you know, and, and, and hear what the reasoning from the department is. So we'll certainly uh, follow up on that story. Okay, let's take a quick break. When we continue, we'll do our health talk for today. But of course, today, a little bit of a different take. We're looking at the processes behind the scenes in as far as diagnosis is concerned.